Welcome to Empathy Always Wins, the world's exclusive youth leadership podcast focusing on empathy and wellness. Today, we have a very special guest by the name of Georgina Merholm. Georgina Merholm is a counterterrorism expert. She has previously served as the Director of Counterterrorism at the G20 Information Center, leading a group of 40 policy analysts in their research on terrorism and regional security. Georgina holds a BA in Econ and International Relations and a Master of Science in Intelligence and International Security. She currently advises governments, prosecutors, and law enforcement agencies on terrorism cases and threat monitoring. Her days consist of investigating violent extremists and criminal networks on the dark web, tracing underground transactions, serving as an expert witness on terrorism in court, and creating algorithms to forecast threats. I'm extremely proud to call Georgina one of the most empowering and inspiring women youth leaders in the world. So let's dive deep into it. This episode is brought to you by Empowering Media. Empowering Media is a Canadian boutique social media agency delivering results to purpose-driven changemakers and social enterprises in our global community. Hashtag create to empower to join the movement. Georgina, 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 how are you? Awalan, um, which means first of all in Arabic, thank you so much for not only just believing in me and being my number one supporter. Um, many of our viewers today or listeners don't uh, know a lot about what we're about to talk about because it's, uh, it's, it's a very new uh, topic. When, we, when I personally think of counterterrorism, uh, I am not only intrigued, I'm very curious. You work in counterterrorism and that could come off as, as, as scary. How do you explain to, how do you explain that to someone on a first date? <laughs> um, so I don't explain it on the first date. Okay. Um, I usually just say I work in security um, and it just sounds less intense, I think. <laughs> <laughs> So what the, what does that actually mean? Like, what is it that you do uh, on a day-to-day? So I am a terrorism investigator and a threat forecasting analyst. Um, mm-hmm. It's very hard to tell what I do day-to-day because my days look very different. Uh, no two days are really the same in my life. And, you know, some days I'm assisting a prosecutor during a trial. Other days I'm on the dark web speaking to terrorists undercover to map wow. out what they're planning and try to prevent an attack. So really it just differs um, depending on case and season. And what type of cases have you dealt with? I, I find this extremely, Annie, I know we've spoken a lot before on a, on a personal level. Uh, and for the viewers that really don't know much about how I know Georgina, uh, we actually grew up together and uh, you can tell them a little bit more about that. <laughs> but we've known each other since we were three. And it's uh, I'm actually very proud of uh, how far... I call Georgina Nina, <laughs> how far Nina has come. And uh, but going back to that question, what, what cases, actually touch a little bit more on, on, on how we know each other, Georgina, before, before we touch into the types of cases that you've uh, dealt with, because you, I already know you're fascinating, but they don't know a little <laughs> bit more about you. So I want you to go in a little bit first. So, um, so Ali and I actually went to school together. Um, 
So I went to the same school pretty much my whole life. And Ali grew up um, in Cairo before he moved to Dubai. Um, so it's Aish um, Rayani. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think we reconnected when we both moved to Toronto. Uh, we do very different kinds of work, obviously, but I think we always are very intrigued by each other's work and um, are very supportive of one another. So it's it's really cool to be kind of interviewed by someone that um, I know very well on a personal level. Um, <laughs> and this is my first time experiencing this. So um, it's really cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's actually weird to be professional with the, with someone that uh, I'm very personal with usually. Uh, let's, let's hop on to, let's hop back into it. So what cases have you, uh, what cases have you dealt with, Yanina? What, 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 what are the things that probably I had to, I even don't know much about, um, feel free to dive as deep as you want. Yeah, so just a disclaimer before I say anything, if I ever decide to comment on a case publicly, it means that it's already gone through law enforcement, court cycles and whatnot. I would never speak about an ongoing case. So if anyone's listening to this and kind of freaking out that I'm disclosing so much, don't worry, this is also in the press, okay? Perfect. So that Thank being you said, for that. Um, one recent case that um, I was working on was, you know, we were using software and decryption tools to geolocate the server of a young professional living in North America who created a do-it-yourself how to make explosives in your kitchen video. And he posted it to an ISIS group chat on the dark web, um, essentially encouraging people to create explosives in their homes and, and bomb areas of their country. So this is a really good example of how terrorism has evolved and is now being decentralized because essentially anyone can do it anywhere. We don't really have the same model of, you know, the, you know, the dude with the, with a Kalashnikov or with a big weapon on the border. It's, it could be anyone. Um, and it makes it a lot harder to regulate and control. Um, another case I recently worked on was collecting evidence against a company that was financing a terror operation abroad through seemingly very legitimate business activities. Um, you know, they were paying taxes as usual. They looked like a very regular um, company, um, but, you know, you dig deeper and you find uh, a web of transactions that connect to other parts of the world. And um, essentially um, th that went to court and that person is now in jail. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of like the cases that I work on when it comes to threat <laughs> forecasting. And how old are you, sorry? How old are you, sorry? How old are you, sorry? I'm 22. Okay, holy shit. That's, yeah. that, that, that's impressive. Okay, yalla. <laughs> um, so when it comes to threat forecasting, what I do is a very different. So forecasting is about quantifying trends and patterns so that we can predict future threats. And it's very similar in technique to how economists can predict growth, recession, and economic activity. And that's where my quantitative background comes in. So for one of my government clients, I recently dug up um, decades of data on every known domestic attack that has happened um, to create an algorithm that then has helped predict the likelihood of a dormant terrorist cell becoming active in any village of that country. So that's mm -hmm. another example of how we can use 
models and economics actually to uh, to predict to predict future threats. Yeah, I know. I know you have an economics degree, so uh, that's probably it. Probably ties in with it. You know, it connects with what you're doing right now. For because I know many of uh, our listeners don't know that you've graduated from the University of Toronto with an economics degree. Can you talk a little bit more about your master's? Yeah, so um, I my master's was in intelligence and international security. Mm. Um, and I've always kind of been curious about security, but it wasn't until I kind of accidentally started a terrorism investigation that I decided to pursue it on a professional level. Just wait um, one second. How did you accidentally stumble upon a terrorism investigation? Look, like, <laughs> I'm sorry to anyone else that may not have found this a little bit just fascinating. One does not simply just stumble upon an accidental terrorism investigation, but you can go for it. And I'm sorry I think, for that. Um, I'm a bit of a troublemaker. <laughs> I'm just I've always been that <laughs> curious child that like you know just chases after whatever I actually find curious so if if I if I see danger I usually don't look the other way I usually just dive head first and see what happens which yeah. my parents have had to suffer through <laughs> so um <laughs> I uh, I actually did a full seven minute podcast on how this came about and how my first investigation um, came about while in university. So maybe we can link it we'll, in your we'll show notes. It. Yeah, we'll link or it something. for sure. We'll yeah, it. I but do have so the just to, link for sure. In, just to cut it short, um, I was a 17-year-old university student living in Toronto when I came across um, an advertisement for a charity event raising funds for children in war zones. And it was essentially a cover for a terrorism financing operation that was taking place all over North America. But we didn't find this out until three years later. So mm-hmm. at 17 years old, I go to this event. Um, I feel instantly and like unexplainably unsafe um, being a Coptic Christian. It was a very familiar feeling to me having lived in Egypt um, under the governance (laughs) of uh, Jihadist group in 2013 when the Muslim Brotherhood was governing the country. And so they asked me what my name was when I walked in and I immediately hid my cross um, into my, my sweater and I said my name was Zainab. And it was just like complete at a snap of a finger, didn't even think about it. It was kind of like an instinctual reaction. Mm. Um, I didn't want to tell them my real name because it would have been indicative of my religious background. And I've done this quite often in Egypt, actually, where I'll walk somewhere, I'll walk into some place that I just know there's some sort of religious supremacy. And this happened more so when the Muslim Brotherhood was in power. Um, but I just would say that my name was Jumena or something like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, no, it's a serious issue. And yeah. it's, it's something prejudice can sometimes be uh, like, and that's probably what we're going to be diving deep into. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's understanding and empathy, which is the theme of this show. Empathy always wins. So with, 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 just, just to, Yanni, go a little bit, uh, dive in a little bit deeper. You mentioned instinct uh, is what led you to investigate that nonprofit. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how have you always been that, uh, that girl that goes with her instinct? Like how can someone, how can someone follow that? Cause I think me and you are our type of people that really sort of follow their gut with a lot of things, but I'd like to know what, I'd like to know a little bit more about how perhaps um, you go on about it because your career depends on it. 
Yeah. So when I was younger, I actually was naturally very calculated and strategic in my decision making. Um, I used to be the kind of person that made pros and cons list, um, literally weighted in percentage by level of importance for everything in my life, uh, whether I should break up with a boyfriend to what university I should go to. It was quite obsessive. And um, I had unhealthy habits of reducing everything to an equation and that I think affected every aspect of my life, beginning with my faith and ending in my relationships <laughs> and anxiety. Um, I think since then, and I think I like owe a lot to it, to my job, actually, I've grown a lot personally and I've learned to rely a lot more on my instinct as well as my faith. Mm. Um, so in counterterrorism, those equations and pros and cons list and all of that stuff barely ever works because part of being strategic is being adaptive and flexible in order to successfully navigate the unknowns. So when I first started my investigation, I was operating on, uh, on sheer gut, right? And maybe mm. a little bit of recklessness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think you know, how this was explained to me later on when I actually did end up, you know, making a career out of it and getting trained was that our evolutionary instincts developed over time to help us survive. And that's something that everyone has. It's not something that only counterterrorism professionals have. It's just knowing how to unlock it. Um, And the simplest example is our ability to identify and invade a predator. You know, Um, when you sense that something is dangerous, usually, it is and uh, that's a very important skill to hone because instinct is scientific Um, it draws on a lifetime of accumulated experiences that are quietly stashed in our subconscious and then broken down into chunks over time and you know you could be busy living your own life and those experiences begin to repeat themselves in the forms of patterns and those patterns then become sort of like algorithms in your subconscious where your instinct can search and draw conclusions from, you know, algorithms that your conscious mind might not even have access to. Um, Your conscious mind not even know that those kinds of data patterns exist. So going back to this investigation, if I had created a pros and cons list instead of just operating on instinct, my life would have probably taken a very different turn. Um, There are too many data points of experiences for my conscious mind to have processed in that minute where I made the decision to even say that my name was Zainab and accidentally end up going undercover when I was really just protecting myself. And that's where I think my subconscious mind proved to me that it was a lot smarter than my my conscious mind, or at least smarter than mine was on that day. And you know, Yanni, I was uh, I was just I just got off a call actually uh, off a podcast episode with uh, Tanvir Nasir. Uh, he's uh, an award-winning leadership writer and author. He was telling me a little bit more on uh, on how it's actually how we are hardwired for for these subconscious feelings and uh, neural pathways in our brains actually are there to help serve that flight or that fight or flight response. And um, people that sort of put a put a blind eye to on their emotions and on events in life uh, are often at a disadvantage because um, as kids, we, 
we are very sensitive and we're very emotional and we have a deep understanding of one another. And as we grow up, you know, with cultural biases, with, uh, you know, it, you know, the jam, as we grow up, we start to develop our own uh, mental models of the world. Sometimes we lose that sort of empathetic, uh, we call it emotional intelligence, that skill, which can be built and rebuilt again, um, which is essentially what you were talking about when you, walked into that room and you uh, you said your name was Zainab, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you felt afraid because you were in tune with that emotion. Uh, whereas I think that this is an emotional um, response that, you know, for many, it comes natural. But I, I do believe that you can train that. And that brings me to my next question. Uh, the average listener won't use their instincts to detect threats like you do. Um, to stop terrorism. What advice would you give people in general who want to start relying more on their instinct to make business or personal decisions that can benefit their quality of life and even further them in their career? Yeah, I think that's a very good question because I've since also started relying more on my instinct for my own personal life outside of counterterrorism. I think that for me, so I struggle with anxiety um, and I, my anxiety has gotten heightened since taking on specific cases. I struggled with some sleep paralysis um, after doing one specific case that was honestly traumatizing. Um, and I remember talking to my boss and there was, there was um, one day specifically where I was telling him, you know, I think, I think my instincts are telling me that we should go this direction. And then he asked me like, are you sure that's instinct or is that anxiety? And, and he was right. So I think that what, what he was trying to tell me was your instinct can only perform as well as your self-awareness allows it to. And by that, I mean, for your instinct to work the way it should, you really need to be able to differentiate the different voices in in your head and and for that you need to be to have a lot of mental strength that doesn't mean you need to be clear of all mental illness it just means you need to be aware of it so for me i've learned that my anxiety um <laughs> i was talking to a friend two days ago and i was trying to explain this to her because she also was trying to justify her actions by saying it's my gut and i was telling her no this isn't your gut mm. i think this is your anxiety and for me, the way I kind of picture it is my anxiety. You know that video of Kanye West in the White House talking to Donald Trump yes, where he yes. literally is not breathing and he's just like, <gasps> like, <laughs> you know, like, and, and he's just speaking so loud and frantic. Yeah. To me, that's what my anxiety sounds like. Mm-hmm. And then my instinct or my intuition is powerful and wise and calm and anchoring. And it kind of sounds like Oprah. That's, that's how I like can explain it in the simplest of terms. Um, so fear think, versus empowerment, right? That's how you, so fear versus empowerment, right? One, one act, one gets you to act from a, from a, from a state of fear versus one gets you to act and feel, uh, feel empowered. Is that, is that how you would clarify it? I think so. I think sometimes, you know, it, it empowers you by giving you signals. So sometimes that signal could be a flight or fight response. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes that signal is to go for something, you know, and I think the only way to really um, 
unlock the potential of your intuition is to become self-aware and to really know yourself and know what your anxiety sounds like and know mm. what triggers it, but then also know what your intuition sounds like. Be their friend, Be the make your intuition your best friend because mm. essentially once you move past those hurdles, your instinct is your guardian angel and can be a very useful tool in work, life, relationships. It can... For me, it, it could be the difference between unlocking a source that will stop a bomb and, and not doing that. So for me, the consequences are, are quite large. And for people working in security, the consequences are quite large. Um, but I think it also applies to day-to-day life. Yeah. First of all, I want to say thank you for sharing uh, uh, your, the fact that you, know, you, you experience and you struggle sometimes for, uh, from anxiety because... Uh, it's, it's brave uh, to go on public record and disclose that. Uh, second of all, I want to, you know, go in a little bit deeper and dive into, in, into the statement, empathy always wins. How does that, how, how do you incorporate that in, in your field of work? And do you agree with, with that statement? Can empathy win you cases? Can your display of empathy allow you to, uh, not, I wouldn't say crack uh, a terrorist, but pass through a barrier that, otherwise wouldn't have been passed? Mm, Yes and no. So uh, when I worked in global governance, I was always told that empathy was the most important part of a peace negotiation. Mm. But a negotiation can only be successful if peace is what both sides want. Um, It doesn't work when one side wants to win. In the case of terrorism, jihadists are not fighting for peace, they're fighting to win. And Mm. at that point, the alternative is to fight back strategically. So in that case, empathy can have a place. And and I don't mean it in a way where we're going to be apologists to terrorists because that's extremely dangerous. But what I mean by that is it can help us really understand what we're fighting. It can help us deconstruct what their motives are, what their triggers are, what their vulnerabilities are. Mm -hmm. Um, It can be very scary to look someone in the eye who's killed thousands of people and try to see humanity in them. And it's so much easier to reduce our adversaries to one dimensional binary things. Mm -hmm. But you know, for the last few decades, we've been treating terrorists like this one size fits all where someone, you know, is wearing a certain clothing and, and was wear and is carrying a weapon and looks a certain way and has a beard. And, and how, where has that gotten us really? Because, um, you know, they've outsmarted us because they've taken on different forms and we've been too scared to approach that to understand what goes on behind behind all of that, behind mm. the facade. Um, you know, terrorism has actually, since the formation of the G7 in 1973, terrorism has increased by 5,000% and no one is talking about it. Wow. No one is talking about how the strategy we've been using for the last how many decades has just not worked. So I think, you know, we have to stop being so reactive and start being proactive. And to do that, we have to dig deeper. When you dig deeper, you have access to very interesting data points, things like, you know, like the percentage beneath livable wage that a border guard gets paid and therefore the potential for them receiving a bribe Um, and and having a terrorist cross illegally, that's a very important data point that you would not get. We don't get those data points from 
looking at someone as a a one-dimensional thing, we actually end up losing and they end up outsmarting us. Mm -hmm. So in this case, empathy doesn't mean that you agree with someone or that you justify their actions. It just means that you can put yourself in their shoes and understand what drove them from point A to B. And that's data. So it doesn't have to be this like self-sacrificial act of of feeling sorry for someone. It can actually be self-serving. And, you know, if you understand your enemy, you're one step ahead. You're not reactive. You're proactive. You don't win a war by making rash, reactive decisions. You win a war by being strategic and proactive. And you cannot do that without crucial data points like the things we just discussed. And you can't access those crucial data points without leveraging vulnerability. So I'm just going to leave you guys with like one thing and that is war is strategy and empathy is data so whether your adversary is i love that whether your adversary is someone that you're trying to negotiate a business deal with and you're trying to win that negotiation whether it is you know an argument that you're having um with a partner i think (laughs) Don't leverage <laughs> partner. I have. It just does not go well. But but it's just it's I think it applies to everything. War is yeah. strategy and empathy is data. So I think I think that that's that 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 goes in the books for sure. That goes in the books for sure. Um I know your job is very demanding. Um how do you manage your own mental health after seeing so much darkness? Because first of all, you did mention that your job requires you to look into the eyes of people that have killed thousands and have you done that yeah i have fuck <laughs> so how do you manage how do you manage being being the strong nina that i know uh, um well okay so first off my job contract says i need to get a psychiatric analysis every 45 days so okay. i should probably mention that <laughs> but i'm like i'm not like doing this on my own i think i have a lot of resources to um to help me manage whatever it is that I'm exposed to and the traumas that I see on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I think actually this kind of forced me into a corner to start taking care of myself because um, a huge part of my job is being very self-aware and being very mentally strong. Mm -hmm. And once that suffers, your investigations start becoming inaccurate and the consequences are pretty large, like I discussed. Mm -hmm. So I think that doesn't just apply to mental health, but it also applies to even like my, like discrepancies in my character that maybe are actually um, holding me back. For me, I think anxiety is one of them and being able to, being unable sometimes to confute, I conflate my anxiety and my intuition quite a lot. That's the Mm -hmm. first one. The second area where I kind of, you know, lack is confirmation bias. Um, and that comes, I think from, I'm a very proud Egyptian. Um, I will defend my country till hey. death. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. You know what? And, and that's great. And I have so much respect for everyone that does love, does things out of love for their country. But I think that when you're dealing with international investigations, you kind of have to check yourself and check your confirmation bias um, so that your investigations still maintain the level of integrity that they should. Um, So I think um, you have to just be aware of 
of your mental health and, and really prioritize that. I, when I was in university, I really did not. I went to the University of Toronto where drug usage is like the highest in North America. Everyone's on Adderall. Um, people are expected to graduate with 4.0 plus like however many years of experience magically. It's an extremely competitive university. Um, and, you know, in the last year, there's been seven to eight suicides just yeah. on campus. So when I was in university, this was not cool. Like prioritizing your mental health was not yeah. like a thing at all. But now that it's like, it's actually in my contract that I have yeah. to um, yeah. take care of myself. So I actually think it's oddly helped to make me, I I've, think I've developed a lot as a person um, because of it. Yeah, I mean, talking about uh, <laughs> UFT, Rotman just had a conference on, uh, uh, on 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 mental health, and it was the biggest conference. Uh, they brought in all the all the executives of all companies to you know implement uh, implement more awareness and initiatives because they realized that the problem is, is is getting out of hand. But going back to that point, uh, do you get nightmares or panic attacks, or do these things come in your like? Do these things pop into like in your sleep? Because I, I can't imagine doing what you're doing personally, and I don't think that is a, that's a skill set that anyone can just have overnight and develop that the, the level of emotional strength that you have. I really appreciate that. Um, I think that for me, I find strength in places that I didn't think I could. Um, I've had to rely on my faith a lot. Uh, which I never did. I struggled with my faith my entire life. Um, and it wasn't until I was in very scary situations that kind of that was my last resort. Um, and I also think, um, yeah, I do. If you're asking if I get nightmares. I do. Yeah. I actually, since I, I've always struggled with with anxiety, but I think it's kind of manifested in the form of sleep paralysis lately where um, not to give too much detail, but I, you know, I, I, I live by myself in New York and I will get sometimes these episodes in my sleep where I'm half oh, awake, man. but half asleep. And I can like hear someone calling for me in the hallway. And I think it's, you know, Al-Qaeda trying to abduct me or something. So I do, I do get nightmares oh, like that. I think everyone does. It's very hard to, like desensitize when you're watching um when you're watching some very scary stuff all day um you know there's a lot of torture videos or beheading videos that i have to watch on a daily basis to try to locate where they are mm -hmm. um so you know watching that and having to take notes or speaking to a convicted terrorist or speaking to someone and questioning them over evidence um, if they have been involved in a terrorism operation, you know, um, mm. it's not, it's definitely, it's definitely not an easy um, job emotionally, but I think that for me, I do it out of love. And I've also learned that courage comes in so many different forms. You know, my mother cannot sit through a full horror movie, but I know that, in a, in a, in a heartbeat, she would take a bullet to protect my sisters and I. And I think at the core, that's where courage stems from. I'm not this like 
superhero. There are so many people more brave than I am. There are journalists on the ground. There are people in law enforcement that have to dismantle bombs by hand. There are people that are getting tortured and raped by terrorists. So really, I'm not that great. Um, but I think my courage stems from love, um, whether it's love for others or love for my country or love for God. I think that with my line of work too, like I said, you have to be a bit of a troublemaker. So <laughs> let me rephrase that. Courage is a lot of love and a little bit of trouble. Uh, that that's another one for the books, huh? That's another one for the book. And just for the record, you are you are great. Everyone is great in their own way. I do not ever wanna I, I don't like it when people and not to not to put you on the spot here, but I don't I think everyone's doing an important job in their own way, shape, or form. So again, like I just want to thank you again for being so vulnerable. We haven't finished yet, but you have been so vulnerable in that last 10 minutes. Uh, and I want to thank you because it takes a lot of courage and a lot within someone to come out and say this on public record. And I think this is probably what I'm going to be doing with all the guests that come on, because I think that like vulnerability is, is core strength is at its core strength. Um, with that being said, has your job made you a little bit cold or emotionally disconnected, having seen and gone through all these experiences? Um, I don't think so. I think at times you do have to shut things off. Um, just in order to get through the day and check things off your to-do list. But I also think that there are times where um, it does just get to you and it, it's hard not to. And, and maybe I'm, you know, I'm still at the very early stages of my career. So I might, you know, maybe in 10 years we'll talk and I will be completely desensitized. But I think mm -hmm. it's hard to watch people butcher each other and not feel anything. Mm -hmm. um, I think I'd be lying if I said that. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, at the same time, I think that when it does happen, when it does tear you apart, which it does, and I see my boss who's been doing this for 30 plus years, you know, there are days where it will get to you. And I think when that does happen, you can't be, you can't take the road of avoidance. You have to tap into it and you have to tap into that vulnerability. Um, and first of all, it gives you purpose. Second of all, um, that vulnerability acts as kind of like a gap filler in yeah. data points that you can't get just from research and just from talking to people. That gut think, instinct that we were talking about, right? Exactly. And yeah. you have to be willing to tap into that power because it is power. Um, it's just a lot. It, it, it takes a lot of bravery to do that. I think the cowardly thing to do is just look the other way and pretend it's not getting to you. But that's when we end up getting gaps in data points and when we end up losing the fight, essentially. Okay, so with that being said, do you think that we should be shooting terrorists at the border? Absolutely, yes. Um, when I said that that strategy has not been working, what I meant by that was there's two parts to it. So the first part is when we're looking at a terrorism operation and we're evaluating it let's evaluate it quantitatively. 
um, you have 80% of resources um, and of human resources, you know, money and people, um, 80% of that is being expended on everything before it gets to a military base. What I mean by that is there's financing operations, there's recruitment, there's army training, there is, um, you know, uh, weapon creation, um, there's support from, from different entities, from the private sector, that is 80% of the operation. So if we're only focusing on 20% of it, which is the military aspect, which is still very important. And by the way, people fighting on the ground are the bravest people I've ever met. And I have so much respect for them. When you talk about courage, those are the people with courage out of love for their country. So when I talk about that strategy not working, I mean, you know, it's simply because 80% of their, their operation happens before. We only start reacting when it gets to a military base, which is where we fall short. The second mm -hmm. aspect is a bit more technical from a war strategy, military point of view. And it's that, you know, terrorism has been around for a hundred years, but really Egypt was actually the only country to deal with it for that long because we had that terrorism started with the Muslim Brotherhood a hundred years back. It really only started affecting the West, um, you know, decades after. So what I mean by also a military, uh, from a military standpoint, militaries don't have that much experience fighting terrorism they have experiences fighting other militaries, and that's a very different technique when you're when you're when you're comparing the two because insurgencies and terrorism they fight differently, and therefore your defense has to be different. And that's not a shortcoming from any side; it's simply a lack of experience. And I think that's why um, the Egyptian military, specifically, because it's been around for the longest. Um, and has had the most experience fighting terrorism insurgency, has kind of been a leader in counterterrorism globally. Um, so when I talk about that strategy not working, it's because of two things. The first part being that the majority of the operation doesn't even happen at a military base. And the second part being, in general, historically, we actually don't have much experience to draw from fighting insurgency. Mm. That makes a whole lot more sense. Do you think being a woman puts you in a disadvantage working in security? Yes and no. Um, yes, in terms of, you know, this idea of having women in security has, is quite new. So therefore, people are less likely to take a risk on you. Um, and it also just sounds very weird to people that aren't in the field when you, you know, introduce yourself as someone working in security. Um, I would have loved to be in the army, but that doesn't look like a possibility. So in <laughs> some ways, I'm like, see, you left. Um, when I first said that, I think everyone thought I was joking, but I truly, truly would love to. So um, if anyone can make that happen, call me. <laughs> um <laughs> so that I think that's like the downside of it. But at the same time, I do think there's a reason that there's both men and women on this planet. And there's a mix of masculine and feminine energy inside of us. So I think my female energy um, is actually an advantage for me and my team because 
I'm very attuned to emotional intelligence, which is stereotypically a feminine quality, and that women's intuition, the, the intuition that, you know, God gave women to protect their offspring is biologically proven. And I think that also um, has helped me judge situations more accurately and more intuitively than my male co-workers sometimes. Um, when we talk about security and counterterrorism, I think those are very important skills that we, where we need more women so that we can contribute that different perspective. We're now over 15 years into a conflict, this war on terrorism that has been waged and executed primarily by men on both sides. So um, I think, you know, if we want things to change, we do um, need to involve women because they, they offer a different skill set. And you don't have to be the same to be equal. I think we need to embrace our differences so that we can add um, different perspectives to the solution. That actually is a great segue to to this next question that I have for you, which is, has there ever been a time where you've ever felt the need to embody a, a little bit of a more masculine type of energy working in security? I think, um, so I think when you're younger and especially, you know, my, the first time I ever sat at a table where it was all men, which happens quite often in my field, um, I found myself trying to mimic the people around me. Um, and I think that that can be, you know, happening in any field, like whether you're in security or um, sometimes in finance, I hear my friends talking about it. I think when you're young, you just, you learn from whoever's around. And if everyone around you is a man and they have quite high masculine energy, you think that that's the only way to be successful at your job. But what I found was that by actually embracing my feminine qualities, my skills of compassionate engagement, my ability to really climb into someone else's perspective, my ability to get a source to trust me and charm my way into uh, you know, getting access to things that usually other people wouldn't. Um, so I, I started seeing those things as superpowers as opposed to something that is weighing me down and something that I need to hide or not embrace. So I think that actually by embracing my feminine superpowers, um, I became a lot better at my job. But definitely at first, I think it's very tempting to just mimic everyone around you. Yeah, and I think a lot, a lot more women have to really um, consider what you've just said right now, especially in any in any field or in any career, right? Um, especially with eighty percent of uh, leadership roles being filled by men, how do we balance that gap and uh, and 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 make sure that it happens uh, in the best way possible? And I think that was a great question. But leading on from there, what do you think of female leaders in your field? Is there anything you'd like to, is there, is there something you'd like to put out there for women leaders in security? Well, to be quite frank, we don't really have much data to draw on because like you said, we haven't seen much female leadership at the very high level of governance or of security for that long. So there's not enough data to draw from to even see what that would be like. But one case that sticks out to me the most is Rwanda. So Rwanda is one of, actually, it's the only female majority legislature in the world. And um, 
we're now 20 years past the genocide, which killed a million people in 100 days. And for a country so small like Rwanda, that's one out of 10 citizens. Um, so b because of their female leadership there, they've cre created a program that when I first heard of, to me sounded absolutely absurd, but you know, the results kind of speak for themselves. So essentially their program is that each family, victim family. So for example, if I had someone in my family get killed by someone in yours, God forbid, but let's just mm. pretend, um, you and I would have to have a conversation that sometimes lasts over a year where the, pl the closest living relatives um, of the victim speak to the closest living relatives of the, uh, the killer. And, and they've been able to create this, you know, channel for forgiveness that we've really never seen before, um, on such a large scale. And this ability to move beyond trauma has led to now Rwanda being one of the highest growing economies in Africa. So they've actually, you know, the results show, at least from a, from a numbers point of view, that they've been very successful in putting that trauma behind them. And I think that was because of the female leadership. I think, wow. uh, you know, with when I was younger, going back to something very small scaled, if my sister and I would ever get into arguments, you know, my mom would always kind of create this environment where it felt like court a little bit, where mm. we'd both say our sides and, you know, we'd, we'd find common ground and whatnot. And I really think that that is a traditionally feminine um, style of leadership. You're hearing both sides out. Um, you're really trying to connect on a human level of forgiveness and, and compassion. And, you know, that might sound very idealistic. To be honest, to me, it does. And I still think it's completely absurd, but it seems to have worked. So I think that's wow. an example. Wow. That is, uh, you know, when, when we spoke about this just before we hopped on the show, it, it's still like, even as you say it again, it still fascinates me every single time I hear that because, um, you know, we are in need for more women uh, in leadership position roles. Um, I advocate for that. I, I try my best to, to, to really speak on that, on, on, on their, you know, I, I don't want to ever say on their behalf, but uh, until we have way more women talking, I think men also need to play a role to enable and enforce that. So um, again, I just want to say that that was, uh, that was a great answer and uh, that, to say the least, it was empowering. So Nina, right now, what we're going to be doing is we are going to be heading into um, the fun part of the podcast, Empathy Always Wins. I really want to dig deeper, and I feel like you're one of the most fascinating people that I personally know. This segment is called the Fireball segment. So are you ready? I think so. <laughs> All right. Give me one second. Let me just put my timer on, and we have one minute. Okay, let's go. What's your biggest fear? Um, conforming or not being uh, not being free. What's your favorite color? Uh, pink. <laughs> What's your favorite sports person? Um, I'll say Mohammed Salah just because he's Egyptian. Okay. What's your proudest achievement? Um, 
I don't know, I think writing my thesis, my first investigation, AKA. Mm. Favorite motivational speaker? Ooh, I don't think I have one. What about your I don't book? listen to enough motivational speeches. I should. <laughs> what about your favorite book? Mm, I have a few, but The Art of War is my favorite right now. If you could live one day, relive one day again, what would it be? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Favorite food? Um, popcorn with black truffle salt. Money or fame? Money. Number one thing that annoys you? Um, when people cannot see two sides of something and are too stubborn, because I think it's the number one trait of a narcissist. The number one song that best describes your life? Uh, um, we have 10 seconds. Sorry, sorry. I can't think at the top of my head. Hot and Dangerous, is that a song? No, that's... <laughs> do you know that song by Katy Perry where she says hot and dangerous? Yeah, yeah. dangerous, if that's a song. Dangerous, okay. That was that was quite intense. I could tell you <laughs> that, uh, that you were steaming up, <laughs> which is a good thing because uh, that's one thing me and you know very well that uh, we need to tap into that, right? We need to tap yeah, into I guess. <laughs> okay, so... Moving on from that part of uh, our podcast, that segment, actually shout out to uh, Aaron because uh, I was inspired to include that fun part of the podcast after going on his podcast, which, uh, you know, you're in always constant state of learning. Um, so shout out to Aaron, uh, Find Your Voice podcast. I think it's one of the Thank best. Thank you, Aaron. That. that was fun. Yeah. So we're going to head into the next part right now. So I'm oh, going to ask you... Wow. Yeah, we have two more parts. So right now, I know that uh, part of our growth is is is, is built on self reflection. So I'm going to ask you one question, and um, hopefully by sharing the answer with with our viewers and, and listeners today, uh, they could take one thing out of out of your life to sort of implement into their own life. So if you could go back in time to the younger Nina, to the younger Georgina, what's one thing you would tell her that you would do differently? Don't trust girls outside of your bloodline. <laughs> Actually, I'm joking. Um, okay. Kind of. Put that aside. Like, kind of joking, kind of not. But seriously, um, something I would tell my younger self <laughs> is you can be right or you can be happy. And what I mean by that is... You know, for me, I've always been a very firm, confrontational person. Uh, for better or for worse, I think it's my best and worst quality, but it can be very toxic if all, every time you go into an argument with someone, you, your mentality is, I have to prove this person wrong, instead of just actually going in with an open mind and saying, what can I learn from this conversation? You know, it's okay to admit that maybe you know, you reached a conclusion that was based off of some sort of bias or inaccurate information. It's okay to change your mind. That's how you grow and evolve and better yourself. So um, I think the bigger thing is like, just stop trying to prove people wrong and instead try to make them more because 
you know, the biggest thing you can get out of going into an argument with someone that carries different beliefs than you is it should be based on this uh, desire to expand your worldview and not based on a desire to win an argument, you know. Uh, the chances are the other person also thinks that they're the good guy or that they're right and that they're very logical. So, you know, you win nothing out of the situation by proving that you're right. You don't end up curing cancer. You don't end up finding a solution. Um, and it's also important to identify when the other person is just trying to win. And if that's their goal, let them you know um be able to also identify that desire to win in yourself it's so important to be self-aware because at the end of the day diversity in thought is such a great thing we should embrace it and i think if we all spent more time expanding how we think instead of proving points to each other we'd live in a much more collaborative productive and solution-oriented world i think so that's amazing and i and i totally agree with that but to a 15 year old nina how would you simplify all that in one sentence you can be right or you can be happy <laughs> perfect perfect yeah the right. next the next segment is going to be it's actually going to be one question and uh it's going to be revolved around legacy uh you know you are someone again that's doing something that many Middle Eastern uh, women and men uh, dare not to do, especially in the U.S., work in counterterrorism, which to me is extremely uh, impressive. But tapping into your legacy, what would be the title of the book that you would write a hundred years from now? If there was a title on a book written by you, what would it be? And what would be written on the back matter of the book? <laughs> um, like, is it supposed to be a funny question or do you want a serious answer? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm not cutting that out. I'm putting that in the podcast. <laughs> I want that to be whatever you would make it to be. Um, I think confronting, confronting terror or, you know, my friend um, introduces me to other people as... This is Georgina, she's a terrorist hunter, which is the funniest thing ever. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, um, confronting is not something that is happening a lot in counterterrorism. I think um, what people are doing instead is treating it like purely a military matter where you're, you know, you're just fighting on a military basis. But, um, you know, this war on terrorism has been going on for so long now. And I think really the only way to do it is to confront and, and, um, and that requires a lot more than a military response. It requires a legal response. It requires um, an educational response. It requires a policy response. It's, it requires, um, you know, confrontation between governments that might be actually supporting some of those activities. So it really is about confronting um, that underground economy as a whole and treating it as a holistic thing. And um, I think such a big part of who I am is a confrontational, slightly controversial person. And, um, and I, think, I think that's why I'm not too scared of, of asking those questions. So with all that being said, what would the title be? 
confronting terror, I think. That's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. You've got it, you've absolutely nailed it. Again, I'd like to say thank you so much, Georgina, for not only being our first guest on Empathy Always Wins, but really putting yourself out there and showing the world that vulnerability at its core is true strength. I'd also love to thank all our listeners, yes, you guys, because if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be excited to bring guests that inspire, empower, and have purpose-driven missions to create a change for our future. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, just remember, in life and in business, empathy always wins.